All right, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Where we've come to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're looking at verses 1 to 9 this morning. I have had the privilege of being there for each of the births of my four children. And if you've been at a birth, especially if it was a natural childbirth, then you know that it is a wild, sleep-deprived, nail-biting, adrenaline-pumping, white-knuckled ride. As the mother giving birth is pushed to the very limits of her pain tolerance and her physical stamina, and eventually, if all goes well, out comes this little slimy, red, misshapen, precious, wonderful lump. And then you look at this little person in the eyes and you realize that they're a brand new creation, a human being. Wide-eyed and disoriented from all that they've been through. And so you're excited for them, but you also feel a little bit sorry for them because They've just left this cozy, safe, nurturing environment and been unceremoniously pushed and squeezed and dumped into this big, bright, wide open world. Well, that's sort of what today's passage is about. Because here in today's passage, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, is pushing and pulling and conjoling these people who live in the city of Corinth, the Corinthians, out of their own little self-preoccupied Christian lives into the bigger life and into the bigger purpose of what God is doing in the world. And we need people like the Apostle Paul. We need people who see the bigger picture to pull us out of ourselves so that we can see and participate in the bigger things God is doing in the world. And that's particularly true for a congregation like CBC because we're not part of a denomination where naturally we would constantly be hearing what's going on around us. So we need help remembering that there's a bigger world out there in terms of what God's doing in the world, that we're part of something bigger and that what happens on that bigger scale impacts us, and that we have a chance to impact it. Now, partly our missions committee helps us do that, right? They keep us connected with, with different things God is doing around the world, like we have the opportunity to hear uh, with the, the McClures this morning. I also stay connected as a pastor with uh, by meeting with other pastors, attending ministerial meetings, and by my involvement with 3DM, a parachurch ministry that I'm a part of. Well, for the Corinthians, they've got Paul, and they need Paul. As we've been working through this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, we've seen how self-centered and self-satisfied and self-important the Corinthians are. And several times in this letter already, Paul has said to them, um, you are not God's most special ones who are discovering for the first time the true way. No, God has lots of other children too, and some of them have been following Jesus longer than you have. And in, in some cases, Paul has had to add, 
all of us, we apostles and, and those other churches out there, we all see things this way. And so when you insist on going that way, you're the ones who are out of step and out of line with the Jesus program. So get with the program. Well, when you're a vibrant and committed and enthusiastic church, like the Corinthians were, and like CBC has been over the years, there's a temptation to be a bit arrogant, a bit full of yourself. In our good pride of, of what we are, it's tempting to get prideful in a bad sense and think that we're better than all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who do things a little different from us or have maybe different weaknesses than the weaknesses that we have. And so we can benefit from what Paul is trying to do for the Corinthians here. And as Paul wraps up his letter to them, he's going to once again pull and tug them into the bigger picture of the bigger things that God is doing in the world. And there's a word for the way Paul wants the Corinthians to fit into this bigger picture. The way he wants them to realize, uh, or, or the way he wants them to relate to other followers of Jesus in other places. And the Greek word for this, some of you will know, if we could have the first slide up, is koinonia. Often we translate this word into English as fellowship, but it's much bigger than what we often think of as fellowship, as just kind of socializing together. Koinonia is more than that. It involves partnership. It involves cooperation. It involves sharing. It involves contending together. And right at the beginning of our passage this morning, koinonia involves generosity and financial sharing. Paul begins in verse 1. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Paul says that uh, or rather, Paul uh, says this as if the Corinthians know what this collection is, right? And they do. In fact, remember, in this letter we're reading, Paul is responding to items that the Corinthians have asked him about in a letter that they previously sent to him. And so they've written to Paul, evidently, about this collection that they already know about, but because they want some practical advice on it or some practical direction. But since many of us don't know what this collection is, let me back up and fill in for us so we can be tracking with the Corinthians. Because this collection was a huge project and passion of Paul. Paul talks about it in, in a number of his letters. It's a collection of money to benefit the followers of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem who have fallen on very hard times at that time. Now, the whole Jesus movement began in the city of Jerusalem. And so, in a way, everyone else, the churches in Corinth and, and Galatia and everywhere else, are the spiritual children and grandchildren of the faithful followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. These people in Jerusalem, these are people who have sacrificed a great deal so that the good news of Jesus could be spread to places like Corinth, where Paul is now writing. And Paul is very aware of this bigger picture. And Paul also realizes there's a very ethnic, or the word we might use today, although it's not quite the right word, a very racial dynamic to all of this. 
Because the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are Jewish. While those in places like Corinth are largely Gentile, they're non-Jewish. And traditionally, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. There was animosity, there was prejudice. And Paul had worked very hard to get the Jewish believers to welcome and accept the Gentile believers. Paul had fought battles over this with other leaders. He'd argued for it. And now Paul has struck on an excellent way to continue to build bonds of trust and appreciation between Jews and Gentiles. To bring these two groups together in unity. And it's this. The Jews in Jerusalem have fallen on hard times. They're impoverished. And so wouldn't it be great if the Gentiles, if the Greeks and the Romans in places like Corinth could give something, could pull together a sizable donation to help their Jewish brothers and sisters through their suffering? And so this has become a preoccupation for Paul, something he's devoting a, a, a lot of time and effort into organizing and so this shows up again and again in the letters that he writes to various churches. I remember one time being part of a church that had a missions committee, and, and some on the committee said, you know, we're just going to focus on evangelism. That should be our priority, saving souls. Helping poor people, that's nice. There's nothing wrong with it, but it can't be our priority when eternal souls are at stake. Well, guess what? I can't think of anyone more evangelistic than the Apostle Paul. And Paul strongly disagrees with that perspective. For Paul, this collection for the poor in Jerusalem was a huge priority for him. Paul didn't see a conflict between sharing the good news about Jesus on the one hand and caring for the needs of those who were poor on the other, at least when it came to the opportunity this collection gave to build koinonia, to build bonds of connection, bonds of unity between two ethnicities that historically did not get along, Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul has talked to the Corinthians about this collection before, and now they've evidently written to him and asked him some practical questions about it. And in today's passage, Paul is answering those questions. And Paul gives them some practical guidance on how to manage this collection. And notice what Paul does not do. Paul does not say, wait until I get there, and then I'm going to preach my very best sermon. And I'm going to tug on everyone's heartstrings so people are moved to give and will take a big old offering. No, Paul's approach is much more pragmatic and wise. Paul doesn't want people to feel pressured or just emotionally moved to give. No, Paul wants people to develop a habit of giving, to internalize the motivation to give, to own it, and to make it a way of life. Because followers of Jesus aren't supposed to just be sentimental in their giving or just prone to respond, maybe gullible, when a speaker gifted, is gifted enough to tug on their heartstrings. No, followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous in their character and in their habits. So Paul says, do this. At the beginning of each week, look back on your previous week and see what God's provided, what God's blessed you with. And based on that, 
put aside what seems appropriate for this collection. Save it up. Put it in a special piggy bank, so to speak. And then when I come, you'll all be ready. Nobody will need to feel pressured or guilted. There won't be any shame or awkward moments. We'll just pull together what you've each individually saved up. And then you can appoint some people from among yourselves who you trust, and they can accompany the gift, and you can deliver it yourself to the believers in Jerusalem. He's given them ownership of this. Now, notice some really practical things that we learn here about giving from Paul's instructions. First, Paul encourages regular giving. When I was a kid, my parents had a, a jar. They called it the God money jar. And um, we've done this with our kids, too. Whenever we get an allowance or, or, or earn a little money, even from the time our kids have been little kids, we've encouraged them to, to give some of it to God, at least 10%, more if they want. And it's a great habit for them to get into, as it was when I was a kid, to give regularly rather than waiting until you feel inspired or uh, until someone successfully guilts you or motivates you to give. Give regularly. Second, Paul has them give proportionately. He says, give in keeping with your income. And for the Corinthians, that income would vary week to week. These were the days before fixed salaries and uh, paid days off, at least for most people. Many people worked for themselves. Maybe they made and sold baskets on the street or whatever, or they worked for someone else, and they only got paid when they worked. If they had a sick day, if they took a day off, they didn't get paid. So their income would be different week to week. And Paul says, based on what you made that week and how God has blessed you that week, give in proportion to that. Notice Paul doesn't tell them what percentage to give. He doesn't remind them of the Old Testament tithe. He doesn't give them a formula. You, you know, when I was a young Christian, I really wanted a formula. <laughs> I wanted to know the biblical amount to give. But as hard as I looked, I could never figure out the formula. You know why? Because there isn't one. Because what God is interested in isn't a bunch of people who can follow a formula. But what God is interested in is that his children develop generous hearts. Because God has a generous heart. Children who aren't selfish is what God wants. Children who aren't self-reliant. But rather, God wants children who trust him and who give generously to share with others. So Paul says, give what you want in proportion to what you earn, what God's blessed you with in any given week. And then third, Paul encourages the church as a whole to be accountable for the money that it takes in. Paul doesn't just offer for himself or anyone else, you know, when they come to pocket the money and say, don't worry, we'll make sure it gets there. No, Paul says, you pick some people that you trust and they'll accompany the gift. It was all coins back then, right? <laughs> there was no Zelle, there was no Venmo, there were no checks or wires. So they had to carry the coinage they'd collected all the way to Jerusalem. And so Paul says, send multiple people that you trust on this trip 
That way, along the way, no one will be tempted to dip into the stash. Be accountable for these funds. At the same time, fourth, Paul also encourages them to make their giving relational, not transactional. Uh, because this is about koinonia, right? And Paul, as a result, is instructing some of them to go to bring this gift to Jerusalem for accountability, yes, and also so they can meet their spiritual grandparents when they get there. So they can meet these Jewish believers who have sacrificed and suffered so much so that these Corinthians could know about Jesus. Imagine what this would be like for the Jewish believers, for these Corinthians to show up on their doorstep in Jerusalem with their bags full of silver and say, hey, we love Jesus too. We're all the way from this Greek city called Corinth. Uh, we follow Jesus there like you do. We're part of the same family and we're grateful for you. And so here we wanted to help you in your time of need. And now, for, for Jewish believers, these Gentile believers off in Greece aren't just some far-off story they've heard. They're meeting real live people, looking each other in the eye, sharing stories, getting to know each other. And then for the Corinthians, they're entering this, this Jewish world. They're, they're seeing the magnificent temple and the city of Jerusalem, and they're, they're seeing Jewish customs, and they're meeting Jewish believers who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Maybe some of them knew Jesus personally. And can you imagine the personal bonds that this would create and how it would be life-changing for everyone? Paul is using money here to create fellowship, to build unity, and to knit people together as family. It would be far more efficient to make it transactional and just to get the money as quickly as possible from point A to point B. And often our giving is transactional. We enter our credit card info online, we hit send, we get emailed a tax receipt, done. And I'm not criticizing that. That is a huge um, convenience. But when we can, Let's look for ways to make giving relational. Here are some ways our, our family has tried to do this. Rather than spread our family's giving over a lot of different ministries and individuals, we try to give to a few and to be faithful in that giving. And we try to get to know those ministries and to keep up with those individuals. Sometimes having them over for a meal uh, when they're in town or including them in our family's life in one case, years ago, we gave to a, a certain mission with some friends. We did this together with a small group that we were part of. And, and those friends went on a trip, and we helped them go on that trip. We couldn't go. We had babies at that time. But they got to go and meet the people that we were all giving to in Latin America. And then they came back with pictures and stories, and we all got to share together in, in what we were doing and what we were supporting. Now, our family is certainly not a perfect example of this. Uh, our giving is transactional in a lot of ways, but giving relational is something that we work at. And then fifth, Paul encourages the Corinthians to give to help the needy. Notice this collection isn't being taken to build a church building or to pay the clergy or to buy new ministry equipment. 
Rather, it's being given to help people who are in need for all the reasons we've already seen. This is an act of koinonia, of sharing, of partnership, of suffering with those who suffer. And we should make sure that a good chunk of our giving goes to help those in need as well. Because regularly in the New Testament, that's one of the priorities that Christian giving goes for. And in the Old Testament too, a big portion of the, the Jewish tithe went to help the poor and the needy. Because God cares about those in need. And God wants to help them through us. All right, so that's the practical advice that, that Paul gives the Corinthians about giving. Then he moves on to talk to them about his travel plans and, and what he's up to and how things are going with him. Again, he's trying to bring the Corinthians into the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world outside of their little community. And here Paul moves to another aspect of koinonia. First, he addressed generosity and sharing. Now he touches on hospitality. Hospitality is another part of koinonia. And this isn't just hospitality as in having someone over for dinner, although that's a part of it. But, but no, here actually Paul is inviting the Corinthians to put him up and maybe to put up with him for several months. Notice he says in verses 6 and 7, I hope to spend some time with you. I might even spend the winter. Then he adds, verse 6, then you can help me on my journey. In other words, you can buy me supplies. You can pay my ship fare to wherever I'm going next. And you can give me some spending money. <laughs> now, lest we think Paul's being presumptuous here, I don't know if you remember back to chapter 9, that was quite a while ago, but the Corinthians were complaining because they wanted to give Paul money and he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't take it because he knew the attitude and the character some of them had and that, it, that there would be strings attached to the money they wanted to give him. And they'd think they had a right to control him. And so Paul had said no, but now Paul has thought of a way that they can help him financially that he'll be okay with. And that is they can help fund his trip, his mission to wherever he's heading next. This is the partnership part of Koinonia. It's where we're jointly sharing in the same mission together. The Corinthians, they didn't all have the ability or the gifting to go off and do what Paul did, but they could participate by funding him, by sending him off. Also, they could extend hospitality by putting him up for several months when he visited. Koinonia, being a part of of the bigger thing that God is doing in the world with others of God's people involves hospitality and it involves partnership. Let me ask you, for you personally, when it comes to the bigger thing God is doing in the world, are you personally in, involved, connected? Do you have skin in the game in some way? Or have you subcontracted that out to your church to do for you? Uh, have you boiled it down to a simple transaction where you give a little money and then you get on with your life and trust the church to take care of the God stuff for you? 
I, I can tell you from experience over the years, Ann and I have, have spent time with people that, that have given their lives to God's mission and are serving God in ways and places that we'll probably never get to go. And we've gotten so much from these people. We've had our perspectives enlarged. We've had our hearts encouraged. We've been personally challenged by their example and their lifestyle. And we've been able to put names and faces and stories to the bigger things God is doing in the world, rather than just have some vague idea that it's happening out there somewhere. Also, our kids have had a chance to see that following God isn't just theoretical. No, God is real. God is at work, and real live people, people we know and meet, people like us are trusting God and sacrificing for God and experiencing God as he comes through for them and as he works through them. That's what we get to experience when we partner with people who are serving God in ways that we aren't able to. So Paul is bringing the Corinthians into this, and he tells them, verse 5, how he plans to go to Macedonia and spend time there. And he tells them the exciting news, verse 9, about the big door of opportunity that God has opened up for him in Ephesus to share the gospel, to advance the kingdom there. Wouldn't you love to know what that door was? <laughs> I'm sure the Corinthians got to hear all about it when Paul finally arrived and spent time with them. I'm sure they asked him. And they also no doubt heard about the flip side of it, also in verse 9, the, civic, the, the significant opposition that Paul faced. And how he had courage and how he persevered and how God showed up and helped him through it. The Corinthians would have gotten to hear all of this when Paul arrived. There's nothing like a real, live, living example to encourage you in your own faith and make you a part of the bigger things that God is doing in the world. Who does that for you? The Corinthians have Paul. Who do you have? Who brings you beyond your own little world and, and reminds you and connects you to the bigger needs and the bigger opportunities in the world and what God's people are doing all over the world right now to meet them? What can you do to connect with those people so they can connect you to God's bigger work and God's bigger world? Because we are part of something bigger that God is doing in the world.